a Podcast One production. It's Friday, the 4th of October, 2019. Lunchtime in the middle of the business district in North Sydney, and everyone is out getting a bite to eat. I'm here with a few friends at the invitation of one of them to try something new. A Whopper. Okay, yes, there's not a lot new about a Whopper. Flame-grilled beef, a slice of cheese, and some lettuce and mayo and ketchup and pickles, all that jazz. You've probably eaten one. Most people have at some point in their lives. It's dependable. And it's beef. 100% fine Australian beef. But this one, this one isn't. This one is something else altogether. Well, it started out as a soybean. But this isn't just another tofu burger. This is something that has been very carefully engineered to be exactly like beef. Of course, we've heard that before, and it's never true. It's always pretty ordinary. So while I wanted to humor my friend, I didn't really hold out much hope for a delicious lunch. But I held my breath and took a big bite. G'day, I'm Mark Pesci. The coming next billion seconds are the most important in human history as technology transforms the way we live and work and eat. In this two-part episode, we'll take a deep dive into how food is changing and how food is changing us. Will we still be eating meat? Will we even know if it's meat or if it came from an animal? And what does that mean for the future of food, agriculture, and sustainability? We'll talk to the people transforming our food, learning what it means for what we'll be eating and how we'll be eating it over the next billion seconds. Like a lot of stories about radical new inventions and high-growth businesses, this one begins with a missed opportunity. My name is Jack Cowan. I'm the chairman of a company called Competitive Foods. Competitive Foods is a number of different food service businesses, food manufacturing, and we have been in doing business for 50 years. The largest of which is Hungry Jack's, which is a billion-dollar revenue business. we got 450 outlets around Australia. Started in 1971 in Perth, Western Australia. Now Jack Cohen is way too humble. He is quite literally a legend in Australian business circles, a self-made billionaire, and he's one of the key movers and shakers in the Australian food sector. Where Jack goes, we all follow. And a few years back, he could see... Being in the burger business, you uh, obviously have an awareness of what's going on, who's developing things and things like this. And as we have affiliations with other companies, licensing agreements. And so we have a pretty good antenna as to who's doing what, where, what's working, what isn't working. And uh, I became aware of Impossible, which was an American company that had developed plant-based product and uh, was selling in small hamburger chain based in the Midwest, you know, doing some tests. And then the results were interesting, not great, but interesting. 
And then Whole Foods was starting to focus on that. The millennial crowd is very interested in anything that is climate-friendly, environment-friendly. And so there's a, as I say, as things were proceeding, uh, we were able to see that this is a developing market. So, because he's that kind of guy, he reaches out to the big name in plant-based meats, U.S. startup Impossible Foods. And not ever having had too many original ideas myself, but being able to spot an, uh, an idea that works, uh, we, I wrote a letter to the president of the company Impossible saying we're in the, we're in the burger manufacturing business. In addition to the restaurants in which we operate, we also have a facility that produces 30,000 tons of, of uh, hamburger patties. And so the obvious extension of that is, is this another product that's going to develop? So I wrote him and said, you know, we're in this business. Um, we ship to 26 countries, export containers. You know, you could have a portion of uh, plant-based and regular beef products, things like this. And, uh, you know, can we talk or meet? So, and I never got an answer. So the CEO of Impossible ignored the CEO of one of Australia's largest food businesses, which, well, that's quite a thing. And it turns out that was going to have some big consequences because Jack still wanted plant-based meats. And as it turned out, so did this guy. My name's Phil Mall, and I'm a partner in Main Sequence Ventures, which is CSIRO's venture capital firm. Our mission is to help transform Australia's fantastic R&D into globally significant companies. So CSIRO does a lot of work in agriculture. And in fact, it was the reason for the foundation of CSIRO more than 100 years ago. And to this day, food and agriculture is still about a third of CSIRO's $1.2 or so billion annual budget. I have found it very inspiring. I was not a food guy before I joined uh, Main Sequence Ventures, but being around the work of food and agriculture at CSIRO has taught me a lot about both the problems that we need to solve and the opportunities that we have to solve them with science. And I think one of the particularly interesting things about how food and agriculture at CSIRO operate is they think about it in terms of the whole life cycle from the the genome of a seed planted in the soil all the way up to the nutritional impact on the human being when they eventually eat it. So it's, uh, and you know, the way we think about it in Main Sequence Ventures now is we we describe it as a nutritional delivery platform, which sounds, you know, a little bit intellectual, but it's it's by design so that we don't collapse into the old habits and norms and cliches of food production, which quite frankly hold it back. If if you look at the Australian food and agriculture system, you know, we're a country of commodities. You know, we sell meat and we sell wheat and we sell barley and we sell commodities for not very much money. And then other people make it worth a lot of money and then quite often sell it back to us. It's the cliche of Australia, but we could be making food. If we think about food in its most generic form as a substance that we put inside our body to fuel it, 
and we want to fuel it in the most optimal way. Well, what is that food and where does it come from? And that's, that's a, that becomes a very interesting question when you start thinking about it. Jack Cohen had been thinking about it. And when he was introduced to Phil... You know, one thing leads to another. What else are you doing? Uh, well, we're, we're interested in this. And meanwhile, meanwhile, we're doing some tests of developing our own plant-based meat. And he said, well, you know, CSIRO's got 2,500 PhDs, you know, uh, the budget, that's their business of product development, creating new, new, new concepts, new products. Maybe there's some mutual grounds. So from that, we went to, uh, they invited us to come to uh, Canberra, where we met with uh, some of the people and we established a joint venture concept, which was to develop a product. So when Jack met Phil, they dreamed up a plan and created a company, V2 Food. So I'm uh, Nick Hazel. I'm the founder and CEO of V2 Food. And I got a phone call from, um, from Martin Cole from CSIRO. Would I, would I come in was, uh, for, a, for a chat, which I did. And in the room, there was Phil Moyle from Main Sequence and uh, Martin. And, uh, and they started talking about this opportunity or this possibility around plant-based meat. Um, they knew me independently um, through the work that I'd done in the past uh, with CSRO when I was at, at large sort of food multinationals doing R&D. So I was R&D director for PepsiCo and R&D director for Mars before that. And, um, and I was in the address books of both, both of them. And uh, I didn't know, but they'd had a conversation some months previous with uh, Jack Cowan um, around plant-based meat and could Australia do something. Nick has deep food experience, but... How in heaven's name do you make this happen? How do you create a plant-based meat good enough to be in a Whopper? When we come back, we'll take a look at the process that created the perfect plant-based meat. How do you create a Whopper from plants? Well, Phil Morrill takes us through their process. So Damien, who's our flavor scientist, sucked all the flavor out of actual meat. So you ended up, we ended up with these sort of white, pale, disgusting looking, you know, piles of mints, which if you ate them, it tasted of nothing. And, uh, and then he added the flavor back one amino acid at a time until we had something which was theoretically, you know, what, what's in meat. Um, and we did something similar with the texture system. We were trying, it was lots of trial and error, but for example, the first thing you do is you try and make a sort of perfectly consistent kind of texture. And you realize one of the things that makes meat wonderful is, I mean, I, 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 I think about this a lot, that for me it was, there's nothing stuck in my teeth. And I didn't acknowledge that at first, I was just thinking it's wrong, we're not there yet, it's kind of, you know, if you can, if you can squash it up against the roof of, roof of your mouth and then swallow it, that's not meat, right? And so, so lots and lots of trial and error, both in terms of the science team creating what's theoretically meat-like, and then applying that to a product development team, uh, which is the V2 team, combined with a team at Hungry Jacks who really understand what Hungry Jack's customers really want to eat when they're, when they're hungry and they pull up a drive-through and they, they want a Whopper. Now, all proteins are made out of amino acids. It's what we're all made out of when you take us all down. 
And that's basically what they did. They took something down to its basic amino acids and then started to put them back together to build it back up again, as Nick recounts. So what actually happened, we had flavor scientists in Sydney, and they were developing some of the, the flavor chemistry that we needed to, to make authentic meat flavor. And when I say authentic, it's, it's stuff that develops while you cook it. You don't really think much about meat flavor, but... There's a lot of things that are going on, but one thing you do realize when you think about it is that meat doesn't actually have any flavor until you cook it. It's something that's developed um, during the cooking process. So understanding that chemistry, because it is chemistry that, that happens in real meat, that was done in Sydney, in North Ryde. But the textural part of it, which is how do you take plant proteins and form it into the, the very heterogeneous texture that meat is, again, when you think about meat, um, which you probably don't like to do too much, but in mincemeat and in burgers... There's all sorts of things going on. There's, there's soft muscle meat, there's sort of high grade, and then there's stuff that's pretty chewy, you know, stuff that you really wouldn't want to eat on its own. But actually in, in mince, that's very much part of what the, the, the experience is. And if it doesn't bite back, if it doesn't give you a bit of spring, it really isn't uh, a meat burger, it's a veggie burger. So we've mapped out all of the sensory characteristics of what real meat is. And the textural part was work that we were doing in Werribee uh, near Melbourne, so not only is taste really important, you have to be able to afford it. Obviously, job one is to create something that tastes fantastic because we're ruled by taste with food. You don't, you don't buy something again if it doesn't taste good. But also, somebody who goes to a Coles and a Woolies and, and buys meat and, and balks at the price, you know, it's the most expensive item in my shopping trolley. It was clear to me that whatever we had to do, it had to be at an equivalent price to meat. And so always in the back of my mind, I was thinking, well, how do we do this in a way that's going to be comparable in price? And then the other thing that I think is important is if you frame this up as a global problem and, and the problem in terms of a, you know, a, a trillion dollar problem or a, you know, a hundred million tons of meat, that sort of scale, then you've got to tackle it in a different way. You've got to tackle it so that it's mass market, that it appeals to everybody and also that it's scalable, that it doesn't require hundreds of billions of dollars of investment. So one of the things that did emerge, I guess, from, from working in this space was that we would probably have to work and want to work with the meat industry to make this happen. And the good news about that is if you're working with the meat industry, then they're not automatically your enemy. Now, that's an interesting point. Maybe in all of this, the most interesting point. A lot of plant-based meat companies have come at this ideologically, that meat is bad and people who eat it are bad. And here's the solution so that we no longer have to be bad people. Now, yes, that's an oversimplification, but it's the underlying attitude. And shaming the agricultural industry is probably not going to be the best way to work with them. Why not make friends and influence people, particularly people like this one? Hi, I'm Sky, and I work for V2 Food, and I'm currently part of the product development team and also operations team. But before Sky worked with V2 Foods, she was working for Jack Cohen's Con Foods. At Com Group, my previous role was a combination of roles, so starting from leading the product development team through to leading the operations team, a little bit of business development, a little bit of account management, so a good cross-section of roles um, within that business. Now, Sky is underselling herself, which is totally her style, what she doesn't say. But what everyone else does, 
is that Sky understands more about the Whopper's beef patty than anyone else in Australia. Sky not only understands what goes into these patties, she understands how to manufacture the millions of them that Australians eat each year. Sky understands scale. So understanding the supply chain in the Hungry Jack's business and from having that cross-functional roles within Com Group has really given me the opportunity to understand how the Hunger Jack system works and how Hunger Jack's, um, the supply chain also works. And by using that knowledge, we've been able to distribute to Hunger Jack's on a wide scale quite quickly. First off, though, they had to have something that was good enough to scale up. So venture capitalist Phil and the V2 Food team and Jack Cohen ate a lot of test material. So we met every Friday morning at the Hungry Jack's lab, as Jack Cowan calls it, on the corner of Hyde Park, and we ate product that had been created. And that product was created with some, let's say, some raw ingredients that the the lab had been creating. Now that's a lot of trial and error, as Nick remembers. And we were basically iterating every week, so I was effectively flying down to Melbourne, taking some prototypes, flying back up to Sydney, doing flavour work, and then taking those ingredients up with me to Queensland, which was where the manufacturer of the Whoppers were. And we would be doing that iteration, um, sometimes working through the weekends, backwards and forwards until we got to version number 57, which was when we had Jack in the Hungry Jacks in, in Darlinghurst. Ah, uh, yes. The famous version number 57. And this is where Jack Cohen comes back into our story because he's there with Phil and Nick and Sky, and they're all looking at two Whoppers. One has a beef patty and the other has a V2 food patty. No one knows which is which. You become somewhat of a guinea pig of taste test. The real challenge is, can this guy really tell the difference? And so you got blind taste test, product A, product B, and I got it wrong, much to the delight of everybody. And they, so that was the eureka moment, you know, when you get it wrong and you say, okay, well, you missed, you know, you missed, this is, this is a real beef that's plant-based. But I, we knew that we were going to be able to produce a product which tastes good, which is the main criteria. And uh, the fact that we tried to make it as close to the taste of beef as we could get. So this, right here, this is the tipping point where the owner of Hungry Jack's can't tell the difference between a beef patty and a patty made by V2 Food. It's even better than the real thing. So that's the starting line, and everyone in that room knew it. But how do you get it into 450 restaurants all across Australia in less than 60 days? Well, the good news was that we knew about what the problem was because we'd been working with the developers in that factory already. So we'd already understood what the problem was. So really it was about doing a number of very fast sort of trials. The equipment is broadly there and that's pretty much the same for most meat factories. So the good news is that we can pretty much go into into most meat factories and with minimal uh, capital spend, we can convert it into a, a V2 uh, meat factory. So that's possibly the most clever bit of the V2 food story. It's been designed from the start to work exactly like meat, to cook 
exactly like meat, to be processed exactly like meat. And there's already a lot of capacity to process meat. So that means there's already a lot of capacity to scale up to make V2 food Whopper patties. After Nick and Skye had gotten the production of the Whopper patties scaled up, they sent some of them around for a bit of consumer testing at three very carefully selected Hungry Jacks in Sydney. And that's when I got an invitation to lunch from Phil Moore. I was very excited. And intrigued, because at the time, we had only been tasting it as a small group of V2 founders uh, before that moment. Maybe 10 to 15 people in total had tasted it before this moment. And we were really liking it. So part of it was show, you know, showing off, come and taste this and sort of see what you think. The other part of it was... I find with with food, it's like the emperor's new clothes, right? And I think it's good, but do other people think it's good? You know, I just want to see what people do. So, so we just started bringing some friends along in some very private tasting sessions. So, back to that first bite I took on the fourth of October, twenty nineteen, in North Sydney. It was it was uncanny. I really didn't know that I was biting at anything that wasn't a beef patty. For all I know, it was a beef patty, but they assured me it was a V2 Food Rebel Whopper. It was like nothing I'd ever had before, indistinguishable from the real thing. Whatever that means anymore. So I asked Phil, okay, this is amazing. When is it going out to all of the Hungry Jacks in Australia? And he said, next week. I mean, at the time, we were ready. I mean, because we had been practicing shipping and we had been practicing, you know, 16-year-olds cooking it on the griddle and we had been practicing getting the throughput right. So we were doing it all, uh, think of it as a soft launch. Hungry Jacks had it, it was shipped to Hungry Jacks, people could cook it, we had all the merchandising and so forth, but no one knew to order it. And we were just inviting people along and then we could go up to the counter and we could order it together. So that was the week before. It was our soft lunch launch before the TV. And the rest, well, you probably saw the advertising campaign that went along with it. You probably know about the Rebel Whopper. You may have even tried one. Or you stayed away because every experience anyone has ever had with plant-based substitutes, well, here's what Nick has to say. That is a challenge. Uh, There's a lot of quite ordinary products out there. And uh, we're fighting against that. I think the good news is is that um, there's not that many meat eaters will have tried plant-based meat. And we are very much focused on people who are kind of reducing their meat intake. So I think for people who've had a bad experience, um, it's going to take a little while for them to have another go. But let's hope they do. But the, the reality is, is that if I talk in a conference and I say, raise your hand who's a vegan vegetarian, it's sort of, we get a few hands Famously, I did that when I was talking to a, a load of uh, meat ranchers, if you like. It was really funny. It was like 200, you know, check shirts, and it was not your classic sort of uh, alternative protein group. But then when you start saying, well, people who are, who are trying to reduce their meat, then you do get half the room or, or even three quarters of the room. That's where the bulk of the population is. So I think that they'll still go to the meat aisle, and then if, it's, if there's something positioned that looks very similar, it's priced very similar, and it's, it's sort of... It, 
invites the consumer to give it a try. Our experience is that once you've tried it and it really does deliver and it doesn't cost you more, then why not? But there is another way that works. It has nothing to do with a Whopper and has everything to do with the comforts of home. I can tell you a little story quickly that um, my husband's a very meat and potato man and he's not interested at all in, in this product. And I did cook it once at home and he's like come out and sniffed it and goes, oh, what are you cooking? I said, oh, the plant base. And he said, oh, it smells like meat. I said, yes. And I carried on and getting to where I'm thinking, oh, yeah, it's almost cooked. And he said, oh, can I have a taste? I said, yeah. So he had a taste. He's like, oh, that's not too bad. And then I sort of made a um, savoury mince out of it. And I said to him, you, will you eat this? And he said, and he tasted it again. He goes, yeah, I'll have that for dinner. So if he's going to take it and thinks it's like meat, well, then I think that's, you know, we're almost there, but I know that we can do better. But that's our ultimate goal. That's the way plant-based meats will come into our lives in ways we will barely notice and certainly not taste. It won't be exotic. It'll be the opposite of exotic because even though we like to be a bit exotic when we dine out, we like things to be comfortable and reassuring at home. And if you can do that as Sky did, well, that means everything can change without anyone really noticing or caring. So we have a Whopper that looks the same and tastes the same and costs the same. Where to next? Now that we can make a plant-based Whopper that's even better than the real thing, where does it stop or does it? Are we all eating plant-based meats or are there other ways of growing meat? That's the topic for the second half of this special episode. And I hope you'll join us for that. Has our conversation gotten you to thinking about the foods we might be eating in the future? If so, we'd like to hear from you. Drop by our website, leave us a message on LinkedIn, tell us what you want to know about the future. We'll do our best to bring it to you in a future episode. Big thanks to Jack Cohen, Phil Moore, Nick Hazel, and Sky Anderson for coming onto our show. The Next Billion Seconds was written and presented by Mark Pesci, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia, producer Alex Mitchell, and sound production Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, go to podcastoneaustralia.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search The Next Billion Seconds. 